When I was in college, three out of the five days of my week, I was required to go to a chapel session. If you've ever been in a Christian college, you know the deal. 10 a.m. sharp, you're at the big auditorium, could fit the entire student body of roughly 1,000 to 1,500. Some people go in with their pillows. Some people go in with their homework. Others just sit there and text on their phone. But we were encouraged to listen, and we were encouraged to uh, pay attention because this was a, a time where we could learn things that were not normally in the classroom, where maybe not teaching would happen, not teachers would come in, but different pastors from all across the city, different uh, songwriters would come in and share some of their songs, poets, whatever. There was one day where there was a Christian poet that came in, uh, was sharing a little bit of their, of their work. And they shared with us a poem that was called Clown House. And what Clown House was about is it was, according to what the poet shared with us, is it was them writing and showing their frustration with the church and comparing it to a circus. Now, I want to share that this poet is a very committed um, person and Christian, and they love the Lord, and they love the church, and the reason for it was to build up and to challenge and to encourage the church in the ways that it was flawed. But while that's true, it kind of, the, the poem kind of rubbed me the wrong way. It, it left this odd feeling in me, and almost this showing of a, it's how it's popular to just kind of critique and be frustrated and be angry at the church. It's a popular thing. If you don't believe me, check social media. And note also, this was a few years ago. This was, I was a sophomore in college, roughly. And several years later, in a COVID world, where our world around us is frustrated and is angry and has, is dealing with different issues... It almost seems like the, the popular trope to critique and make fun of the church has only grown. And one of the primary ways that I've seen people critique the church is that the church lacks unity. The church lacks unity. There is this frustration both, both outside of the church and inside of the church where people are sharing their frustrations that Christians aren't getting along, that Christians are arguing with each other, that they're just frustrated with each other, and they've only ever done that throughout the entire course of history, and they'll only ever do that for as long as they exist. The church needs to be more unified, is what they say. And I get those same feelings that I felt when I heard the poem Circus clowns. But I want to ask us a question, because we, about two weeks ago, we heard a wonderful message from Brian Dix on unity and diversity within the body of Christ. And I thought it was fantastic. 
And I said, that sounds great. I want to talk about that too. But I want to specifically ask the question, are we, as the church, as disunified as we think we are? It's a question I want to ask this morning. Are we as the church really as disunified as we think we are? Let me change the question a little bit. Does Jesus think we are as disunified as we think we are? I would make the suggestion that when it comes to unity within the church, that unity is not a goal to reach, but it's a truth to live. Let me say that again. Unity is not a goal to reach, but it's a truth to live. And the way that we're going to talk about that this morning is we're going to open up our scriptures to the book of John. John chapter 17. We're going to start in verse 20. Again, that's the book of John, chapter 17, starting in verse 20. And we're only going to cover a, a few verses this morning, just a few. But I think that they're very important verses. And as you're turning, to kind of set the stage, again, it's John, chapter 17, verse 20, to kind of set the stage... At this point in the book of John, the book of John tells a story of the ministry of Jesus Christ, from his baptism and the beginning of his ministry to his death on the cross and his resurrection from the tomb at the end of his ministry. And we are in John chapter 17 at an event that is commonly called the Last Supper. Perhaps some of you are familiar with this. But to continue to show the tension that's in this part of the story is that only in mere hours will Jesus be arrested and be convicted of a crime and be sentenced to death. Mere hours. If you knew you were going to be in the same situation in just a few hours, what would you be doing? I know I wouldn't just be sitting around eating food. But that's what Jesus is doing. Is he's sitting, or more specifically, according to this time, he was laying at a table with his disciples and all of these men that, again, he knows are going to abandon him. He knows one of them is going to specifically betray him, and he knows that his favorite is going to forsake him. And at the same time, he has a meal with them. And in John chapter 17, we read specifically that Jesus... Again, he could have done a million different things, but instead he decides to pray. Think about that. He prays, and he prays about a number of different things. The first thing he prays for is that God would be glorified through his work, that he would be submissive to what the Father's will is for him. The second thing he prays for is for his disciples. And the third thing he prays for starts in verse let me read that for you. These are the words of Jesus. He says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Remember, in the previous 
section he's praying for his disciples. And now he's praying for those that will believe in him through the disciples, through the apostles' word. As, we, as you read on in the scriptures, you will find that the apostles will, will share the gospel with the world and people will come to know Christ, that will come to a faith in Jesus, and that has carried all throughout history to us today. In verse 20, Jesus is praying for us. He's praying for us. Think about that. He could have done a million different things. He could have prayed for a million different things. He decided to pray for you and for me. That's that's absolutely wonderful that the God of the universe would decide to pray for us mere hours before he would be arrested and tortured and killed. But what does he pray for? Verse 21 gives us that answer. He prays, he says this, so that they, meaning us, may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Okay? Again, our topic for today is talking about unity. And here he is making, he is praying to God, asking God that we would be one together as he is one with the Father. This is his prayer request, if you will. And for many of us, we're saying, okay, wait, I've heard a million different ways people have interpreted this. Where is this guy going? Well, I would actually make the suggestion that the very next verse, verse 22, provides us with a key to be able to better explain this verse, verse 21. And so if you would very quickly come with me to verse 22, and I promise you, I promise, we'll come back to verse 21, and we'll talk it through and we'll understand it, but understanding verse 22 is key to understanding verse 21 and what it means for us to be in unity as the body of Christ. Verse 22 says this, says, the glory that that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. Did you catch that? There is a key here in verse 22 that, that unifies Jesus to the Father. It makes them one. And it's this, it's this thing called the glory. The glory that he, that you, the Father, has given to the Son, the Son has also given to us so that we may be one. So that we may be unified. Whatever this glory is, this, this, this passage specifically is not clear. But whatever this glory is, it is what unifies us together. Sounds like it's pretty important to figure out what this glory is, right? And to know that answer, you have to take a bit of a, a step back and look at the whole Gospel of John. You can't, it's, it's difficult to just read this passage without looking at the entire book itself, because the entire book of John tells one complete story. We spend a lot of time splitting it up into little passages that we forget that it was one complete book written by one man telling one story. 
And so we need to look around the book of John and understand and ask the question, where does, where does the Father give the Son something? Where does the Father give something to the Son? I would suggest that it's all the way back in John chapter 1, the very beginning of the book. You don't have to turn there, but I'm going to read it to you. Specifically, I would suggest it is in John chapter 1, verse 32 and 33. What's happening there is right after the introduction that John gives to the book, we get the story of the baptism of Jesus from a guy named John the Baptist. No relation to the author. And John the Baptist, as he, would, as he will explain here in this passage, he, was, he received a, call, a, a word from God to baptize people, to go into the wilderness to proclaim the coming of the kingdom of God and, and, and preach to people, asking them to repent of their sins and to show that through the external sign of baptism as a preparation for the coming Messiah. And then we, he, he's told also something very special. Let me read it to you really quick. John chapter 1, verses 32 and 33. This is John the Baptist speaking. He says this in reference to baptizing Jesus. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him, being Jesus. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, it is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Remember, this is a message that John the Baptist gets from God the Father, telling him that a man would eventually come to him, that when he baptizes him, the Spirit of God will descend and rest on him in the form of a dove, and it is that man who will baptize people with the Holy Spirit. And we see that fulfilled when Jesus Christ is baptized. That's the only time in the book of John that I've seen where there is a clear reference to God giving Jesus something. The Father giving the Son something. And if it's the Holy Spirit, I would make the suggestion that the glory that is referenced in John chapter 17 is the glory of the Holy Spirit that has remained on Jesus since the baptism of John the Baptist. Are you tracking with me? So when Jesus is praying to God, asking that the glory that the Father has given to the Son that he would give also to us so that we may be one is the Holy Spirit. And the best part about that is that prayer has already been answered. That's an answered prayer request, friends. The very next book in the Bible, we see the book of Acts, and specifically Acts chapter 2, where the apostles who have seen the resurrected Jesus and seen him ascend into heaven, they're waiting in an upper room in the city of Jerusalem. They're praying and they're fasting and they're waiting because Jesus told them to wait for the Holy Spirit. And then, like tongues of fire, the Spirit descended and rested and indwelt them and began the most amazing movement in history called the church. Guys, the glory that Jesus is talking about is already here. 
Remember what I said earlier? Unity is not a goal to reach, but it's a truth to live. We, we, we talk so much about getting more unity, about, you know, we need more, we need more of these things. We don't say this, but we, we need more fancy gimmicks, or we need more, more coffee social hours, or we need more, more of these fellowship events to be unified. And those things are all good, and I'm not wanting to bash on those things. I love coffee, and I love people. But we often assume that we need to reach a specific goal that is called unity. But here, according to the prayer of Jesus, we are already there. We are already unified by a power that we cannot understand, that being the Holy Spirit. How amazing is that? We don't have to trek any longer. We're already there. Now, some of you might be hearing this and going, okay, okay, Preston, sure. You know, Jesus said that. Holy Spirit's here. We're united. You know, great job. Yippee. We're happy. But have you seen what's going on in this world still? Have you not been a part of the conversations for the past year? You might be saying, we may be unified according to Jesus, but we're not unified according to ourselves. Trust me, I'd be, first, I'd be one of the first to say there's a lot that the church can, can work on. There's a lot that we can work on together. And one of those things is being more unified. But I would change our vocabulary a little bit. I would change it from we need to get more unified to we need to live in the pre-existing state of unity. We think we need better. We think we need to reach something more. But God is saying, you're already there. Do it. Live in unity. It's there. It's present. It's here. It's even, it's here. It's online. It's with every Christian brother and sister that believes in the crucified and resurrected Jesus. It's already there. You just need to live in it. Unity is not a goal to reach, but it's a truth to live. And how can we practically do that? How do we practically live in this pre-existing state of unity? I would suggest the answer is back in verse 21. Remember I said we'd go back there? Let's read verse 21 once again. Let's read it real quick. This is Jesus talking about us. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Again, I feel like we've all heard incredible, wild, different interpretations of that, too. There can't be any different churches ever. There can't be any different disagreements ever to, eh, unity doesn't really happen as much in the church today. We've, seen, we've all heard of why, if you've ever heard a, a, a sermon on this passage, you've heard a wide range of application here. But I would make the suggestion that the key to this is understanding the relationship between the Father and the Son as recorded in the book of John. 
Like I said before, this is one book that tells one story, and we can't expect to understand all of it by just reading three verses. But instead, I would say that the unity that Jesus is talking about here is the unity that he has shown, or that John has recorded through his gospel. And that unity, if you were to read through the book of John, which I highly encourage all of us to do, and you know, I need to do it more so, there is a beautiful relationship that is shown and is a theme through the entire book of John. And I would say, that, and it seems like, the verse that sums it up the best that I found was in John chapter 5, verse 30. I'll read it to you here real quick. This is Jesus talking, uh, teaching to a group of followers. He says this, I can do nothing on my own. Just pause for a moment. God said that. What makes us think we can do it on our own if God said that? Just thought I'd throw that in there. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. All throughout the book of John, we see the ministry of Jesus being focused on Jesus repeatedly saying, I'm not here to do my own thing. I'm here to do the thing of my Father. I'm here to do what the Father has told me to do. We see that everywhere. We even see that in a few um, verses later, where Jesus is, is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, where he's about to be arrested and tortured and killed. And he's so distraught that he's crying and he's, he's, he's sweating blood. And he says, Lord, if it be your own will, take this cup from my hand, but not my will. Yours be done. The key characteristic that defines the relationship between the Father and the Son is humility. Humility. I define humility as putting the, the interests of others above the interests of ourselves. And I want to also stop here for a moment and provide a little bit of honest reflection. It's been a very tumultuous year or so. You're all tired of hearing that. I saw a couple of nods. I feel that. We all have seen what I would say, people putting balls and chains on our ankles that have stopped us from living in the pre-existing state of unity that the Spirit has given us. We've seen that in church. We've seen that in the world. We've seen that in our own families, for goodness sake. We've seen that everywhere on social media. And we have all hurt so much and we have all felt so much pain when we see our brothers and sisters disagree with us on certain things and we've seen a lot of that this year and I feel that pain with you it hurts 
And if there's any way that I have made that hurt more in your own personal life, I'm sorry. It hurts. But if we can all take an honest reflection at ourselves, we can all look back on this last year and see the, t- the ways that the, the world turns frustrating and the world doesn't make sense and everything is complicated and there's so many rules and there's so much arguing that we just get frustrated and we, we say things that we wish we didn't. We act on things that later we say, probably shouldn't have done that. We have conversations about people that were not the right thing to do. If we can all be honest for a moment, I feel like a lot of us or all of us have fallen into that trap this past year. And if we haven't said it, Lord knows we've thought it. And what I would say that that is, is we have all in our own different ways put balls and chains on either our own ankles or the ankles of our other brothers and sisters that has hindered them from living in the pre-existing state of unity that the Spirit has already provided us. Or maybe we do it to ourselves. We, we get so frustrated and for some, this is me, we, we internally process and we, our, our thoughts become our enemies and we, we get frustrated and we think it all through and we say, how could they do that? And before we know it, our thoughts become our sins. Maybe that's just me. And I'm, I'm not wanting to come up here and assume that I've got this all figured out. I don't. I know I've made a lot of mistakes this past year. And I'm going to be very open with that. And I've repented and am even still repenting of those mistakes in ways that I've slapped balls and chains on people's ankles that has stopped them from living in unity. I know I've done that. What are ways that you may have done that? Let that be an honest reflection in your own life this afternoon, or even right now. And if you can't think of anything, talk to your spouse. Or talk to a close friend, because you know that they've heard it. But friends, we are all at fault here. And let us all just accept that, and let us all... Embrace that because there is a beautiful thing that can happen when we are all together embracing our failure at at hindering others from living in unity. If we can all embrace that and we can all seek forgiveness from our brothers and sisters, then what a beautiful time that our church can break these chains that we've put on ourselves And we can live in this pre-existing state of unity. It's a beautiful thing. And for the record, living in unity doesn't mean us all looking exactly the same. Or agreeing on exactly everything the same. It's not what, I don't think that's what real unity looks like. You don't see that in scripture except for one thing, and that is a belief in the gospel of the resurrected Jesus Christ. 
apart from that, apostles disagreed, churches disagreed, Paul taught on different members of the body serving different purposes for the sake of building us up together. We often think that the key to unity is mending us together so that we look like a clear window, so that we all together make up a window that people can see through. That's almost our own idealism, isn't it? That's almost our own perfected states that we have in our own minds, is that everyone might, might think the same and look the same and act the same and, and do the same. But that's not in Scripture. That's nowhere in Scripture. That's our own thoughts getting the better of us. I would make the suggestion that when we look at unity within the church, specifically in Scripture, it looks much less like a clear window and looks much more like a stained glass window. Have you ever seen one of those? Maybe you've ever been in a, a traditional sanctuary or some sort of um, maybe church over in Europe that's hundreds of years old, and they have these big, beautiful stained glass windows where there's these individual little pieces of glass that have been just finely crafted that look nothing alike. They look nothing alike. Different colors and different shapes and different sizes and different levels of transparencies. And they all together are purposely formed in their own individual places to show one beautiful picture. That is the unity of the church. That is what our unity looks like. Let that be what unity looks like in your own mind. And that beautiful picture, as we saw at the end of verse 21, tells the world of a God who loves us so much that he would die on our behalf so that he would pull together a group of people that are so radically different from each other that the world can't not see that and say, how in the world are these people agreeing? They come from different walks of life. They're everywhere. Let that be our church's testimony. Let that be your own testimony. I'll say it one last time. Unity is not a goal to reach but it's a truth to live.